Isn't that lovely? They're precious people, and we love them. If you thought that was just a little bit stiff, it wasn't uh, actually prepared just for you this morning. It was prepared for an international conference um, of, of the Salt and Light family of churches, which we're part of here uh, in this church. And um, we have a number of pioneering teams like Ben and Michelle's team. We asked each of them to uh, video as a sort of update report. And so we felt it would also be really helpful for us to see it too. Um, actually, I'd just like to go back to that international conference um, so it was about five or six weeks ago that some of us had the privilege of being at an international conference um, of the Salt and Light Family of Churches, which is an international family of churches and leaders on four continents of the world. Uh, and we were there uh, for in Nairobi, Kenya, for our international conference. People from somewhere between 25 and 30 nations. Very exciting time. But I have to say... The first time we have taken our international conference to Africa. We've had our international conference here in Europe many times, and particularly in the UK, because this has been a little bit of a hub, and it's been easier for people to come in and out uh, of the UK for our international conference. A couple of years ago, we found quite a few of the visas were being blocked, and we said, we said to one another, was probably the hand of God to sort of move us on, as it were. We said, well, why don't we go somewhere else other than the UK if the UK is going to be so difficult about visas? And so we decided to go to Africa. Um, it was, it has changed. That's the best thing I say is it has changed the Salt and Light family for good. Um, because we experienced something while we were in Africa that we have never experienced here in Europe uh, in terms of the quality of prayer and worship, and faith. And what you realize is that different nations have different gifts uh, that they carry with them. Um, and so, so I have to say that Andy O'Connell and I together were quite responsible for designing the program for this international conference, uh, and we put it all together. But we made it sort of a little bit European in, in, in sort of tone, and made the program quite relaxed. We got to Africa, and we were in our international team meeting, and the Africans said to us, this program will not do. If African delegates are coming to a conference, they expect to start the day in prayer. Now, over here, if you start the day in prayer, let's say a conference of a few hundred, let's say 350, you might get... On the first day, you'd probably get 50. And then on the next day, you'd get 40. And the next day, as people get tired, you'd get 30. It works a little bit like that. So we've had plenty of experience of this. So anyway, there was a lot. The, the Africans said to us, this won't do. We want to start the day in prayer. So there's a sort of cynical thing going through my mind. I think, I wonder how well this will work. Because uh, I've been here before. And that's one of the worst things when, you know, you've had a bit of experience in the Christian world is it actually can make you a little bit cynical. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, we'll see. But the, the, the pressure was so great that, I mean, it's obvious. And who can resist a pressure to pray in the morning? And, and so it was decided by the team, by us the team, uh, that we would pray every morning before breakfast for half an hour and that we would be led by the Africans who were, who were on the, uh, you know, in, in whose home backyard we were in. And so we started probably the first morning with 200 in a room that was only just adequate for that. The next day, we must have had 230. Um, and that was when it was decided that we would have to change the room uh, into our main auditorium. And so it went on like that. The faith, the tangible sense of faith in that gathering, uh, morning by morning, was huge. And, you know, unlike our general passive approach to meetings and prayer... I'm not trying to insult anybody here. 
but th this is a European and a British especially phenomenon uh, that we tend to be quite passive in the way that we meet together and I'm not saying anything sort of for or against that although you might think I would have an opinion about it um, but uh, unlike that this was active engagement. Every single person was there to pray. Now, obviously, not everybody could pray, uh, you know, with raised voice for one person to be heard, but everybody did pray together. So the leader would say, now we're going to pray for this, and everybody prayed at the top of their voices for whatever the, the, uh, the theme was. And then, now we're going to pray for this. Everybody prayed at the top of their voice. But the sense of faith and engagement was palpable and wonderful. When we got into worship, we were led by the worship band of uh, one of the churches in Nairobi who are very good friends with us. We've known them for years. For those of you who know Gitau and J.B. Masindi, it was from their church. And, uh, and they, sometimes when you're leading worship, Josh, do, do you wonder if you're going to get takeoff, get lift off? You trundle down the runway, and, you keep, and it keeps trundling and trundling, and you think, with a bit of luck, we'll just get up there. If we could just put it, and it's, you can't guarantee it, can you? No. So, but there, it was like, we're here to worship, bang, vroomf. Vertical takeoff worship, uh, you know, and I have to say they started very mildly for us because it was from the beginning vertical takeoff, but you know, by the end of the week, they were saying to us, Now we'll show you how to, <laughs> how to worship. And this was with all the dance and movement, and, and of course, Africans can move a lot better than we Europeans. There is no question about it. Their bodies are lithe and supple and all the rest of it, and we are as stiff as boards. Uh, you know, but this atmosphere of faith and immediacy in the presence of God was, you know, there was a sense amongst us as a family is we, we want more of this. And we don't want European passivity and stillness to dominate what we're doing. But we do want that energetic faith and worship of God to be to be energizing everything that we do in the presence of God. Now, they will turn back to us and say, we have appreciated the strength of connection with you, the teaching and the foundations that you have laid. So this is a two-way street. But I'm trying, to, I'm trying to underline that, you know, in all of the connections that we have internationally. It would just be nice to know what nations we have represented here before I make a fool of myself and choose the wrong people. What nations are represented here this morning? Come on. South Africa. Zimbabwe. Ghana. Ghana. Kenya. I'm glad I was very positive about Kenya. Is that all right? I said the right thing. Barbados. Romania, Poland, United States, Ivory Coast, Australia, Portugal, what was that? Hungary, wonderful, where else? England, thank you, thank you very much, yeah we got one or two of those, well done Steve, thank you. India, France, France Mauritius. Mauritius, yes, well done. Hey, well, is Nigeria, Spain, oh, thank you, we've got more than we think, since everybody's been very polite about it. Yeah. In another context, everybody shout out and sort of, anyway, there we go. Okay, isn't, isn't, it, isn't it wonderful to, you know, to just understand, you know, who we are together. Um, this time last week, Lorraine and I were in France, and we'd been in France for 10 days for a leaders' conference and then for a week weekend with a church in Lille in northern France. And on the Saturday, we had 
a, a leaders gathering together. The leadership team of this church were together. We started at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, with prayer. And then we started the sort of discussion and interaction that we were engaged in through the day. And about midday, the sort of atmosphere changes and people are getting just a little bit sort of uh, uneasy, uncomfortable, sort of time for a change. And you recognize what's going on. It's midday. Now, midday is the uh, l'heure de l'aperitif, right? It's the time for the aperitif in the French culture. Often in the churches that we are, go to, at midday, you stop. Uh, I have occasionally gone over time in France. I know some of you find that really hard to believe. Uh, and I've gone in serious trouble because this is invading the hour of the aperitif. Uh, and the French are really quite rigid about this. Um, you know, on some things, the French are very flexible. And on other things, they're really quite rigid. And this is one of the things they're quite rigid about. This is the aperitif. So the aperitif comes out and, and the snacks and all the rest of it that go with the aperitif. And that leads on into, uh, into you know, three or four courses, you know, of lunch that we have together. All the while interacting, talking, conversing. And we probably finished about... 3.30, 4 o'clock, something like, something like that. And, uh, and I ended up saying to them, I do love the way you guys meet here as a leadership team. There is nothing like it. And, uh, you know, you just think the richness of these different cultures is quite, quite remarkable. None of this is accidental. All of this is a design, and it's a design of, of God's. Um, in a couple of weeks' time, we will be with, in Norway with the Vikings. <laughs> the guy who leads our group in Norway is called Knut. <laughs> we like that. And uh, these are strong, independent guys. Getting them related together and sort of working together is one of the challenges of, uh, of our sort of family there. But it's still going to be great to be with them. So we're praying. The theme for today is your kingdom come in the nations. I'm so thrilled to be able to speak to this subject. Um, and I just want to try and review, if I can, the Bible story, because it's, it's important to understand that none of this talk about the nations, this isn't just an accident of history, that now we're in a much more global world. And, you know, globalism is the name of the game. And so we have to get used to sort of being close to one another. This is actually a design of God. And it's something that is very, very close to his heart. And one of the things that probably we need to change more and more is our own hearts to be in line with God's heart. Uh, so I'm going to read a handful of scriptures this morning. Some of them will come up in a moment. Um, but one of the things... We can sometimes think, if we're, you know, if we're unaware of what's going on in the Bible, is we start off by thinking the Old Testament is all about Israel and the people of God. Well, the story is about Israel, but in the story, there's a sort of, there's an unfolding of why Israel is so central uh, to the purposes of God, and it is because God wants to bless all nations through the life that comes out of Israel. And so Abraham is called by God to, to go into a land that God was going to show him. And the purpose of that was that he could be a blessing to many nations. It wasn't just so that the people of Israel could have a land of their own and have an inheritance of their own and have a life of their own and be blessed on their own. It was that they could move into a land where God could bless them so that they would be a blessing to nations. That was right at the beginning of the book in Genesis chapter 12. In Psalm 67, one of my favorite Psalms, and we're going to read it now, Psalm 67, we have this prayer repeated that God would bless his people so that they could be a blessing. And it, it's a prayer that's good for us. Okay, it goes like this. May God be gracious to us and bless us. 
Anybody say amen to that? Now, I want you to notice that there are echoes here of what is called the Aaronic blessing, uh, the blessing that Aaron pronounced over God's people of causing God causing his face to shine upon the people and so on. Listen to it. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. In other words, may God fulfill that Aaronic prayer that was prayed over Israel. So that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, Lord. May all the peoples praise you. Note, all. (laughs) May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. Note, all. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still, so that all the ends of the earth, note all, all the ends of the earth will fear him. What is being prayed here is that somehow, yes, God would bless us, but it wouldn't be a selfishly kept blessing for us, you know, just to live in the goodness of God, but actually it would go out to all peoples because God's heart is for all nations. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60. This is a prophecy about the future that God wants to give his people Israel. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Now, one of the things that we have to live with, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, is the challenge that we believe that God has blessed us in significant ways and poured his life into us and we live the abundant life of Jesus Christ, which we rejoice in. And yet there's a thick darkness that covers the nations. And how do we live with the knowledge of the glory of God that we enjoy and yet understand that nations are in darkness? What do we do with that? And this is one of the challenges of being in a global world that we see what's going on all around us. I thought Ben and Michelle were very honest in what they said on that video clip about the challenge of being there. They've been there for several years now. They've not seen nearly as much fruit as they would like. They are and have been reading the scriptures and the Bible story with people, and they are making handfuls of disciples, but but certainly they had a vision for more, and it's hard not to be cynical is what Ben said. Are we really going to make it? Are we really going to see breakthrough? And yet they're entrusting that to God and entrusting the fruit to God and keeping working because they believe that God has called them. That, by the way, has been the experience of many of God's people in all sorts of different situations, uh, you know, of waiting years to get converts. But the promise is the light will break through the darkness of the nations. And there were times when Israel didn't seem to be about to break through, and then times when suddenly God did break in, like when Jesus came. And then, by the way, there's a story of Jonah. Now, I'm not going to read the story of Jonah. It's too long to read. But Jonah is not really about a prophet being swallowed by a big fish, Uh, even though that features in the story. Right. The story is really about Jonah's lack of concern for a world that was lost and dying. 
And I will read two verses out of this book of Jonah, but you can read the story later if you want to and see if I'm not right in the way I'm saying this. Chapter 1, verse 2, this is what we read. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah saying, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah runs. Gets swallowed by a fish. God's way of redirecting Jonah. I suppose that would be enough for most of us, wouldn't it? You know, cries out to God in prayer from the belly of the fish. Gets spewed up, uh, you know, on a shore. And thinks, well, I'd jolly well better go and do what God said. Sometimes we're about as willingly obedient as that, aren't we? Well, I suppose I'd jolly well do it. I'd better do it. I don't have much choice. And so he goes to Nineveh, preaches the good news, and there's a revival that happens in Nineveh. And all these godless Ninevites repent of their sin and turn to God. And Jonah is angry. I mean, he is mad. And he says, God, this is the problem. I knew what would happen if I came here and preached the message. You're a God who is gracious and merciful and has unbounding love for wicked people. That's what he says to God. He says, I'm fed up. They've all turned to you. And God has a little conversation with Jonah about his anger and his unreasonable attitude. And this is what God ends up saying. This is more or less the last verse in the book. So notice that God has the first word in this book, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And he has the last word in this book. And this is what the last word is. He says, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from the left, and also many animals for that matter. In other words, don't you understand, Jonah, what I'm like? I care for the city of Nineveh. It's, it's a lost, horrible place to live, to go to, to work in, but I love them. And the thing that's going on in this story of Jonah is Jonah being converted himself. Because he needed a change of heart. He did not care for the Ninevites. Everybody knew the sinful practices that happened at Nineveh. And he didn't care for them. Not one bit. And he didn't want to go there. And he was cross when they were converted. And God says, don't you understand, Jonah? That's how I am. I love them. Isn't that right? So, shouldn't you? Shouldn't you love them? One of the challenges for us living in God's world, is that we're comfortable with people like us. And we're less comfortable with people a little bit less like us. And we're very uncomfortable with people who are quite unlike us. Who we have to get used to. And who we have to love like God loves them. So, I could pick on the Africa, but there's too many Africans here to <laughs> go there. Anybody ever been on a holiday to Ireland, Southern Ireland? Yeah. Hey, it's a wonderful place for a holiday. To be sure. Thanks very much, Jess. It's a wonderful place for a holiday. They have got... All the time in the world, you agree to meet someone, they turn up an hour later, 
can see why I wasn't going to take Africa on here. <laughs> they, turn up, they turn up an hour later, you know, well, there's been this and that unfolding in their lives, and anyway, we've got time. And if you go to a pub for a meal, uh, what would normally take sort of half an hour, three quarters of an hour in one of our pubs will take two hours, because they've got time. This is wonderful when you're not on holiday, and bad news when you want to get stuff done. And uh, we've had some very good friends in Ireland, and we still do. Uh, you know, but you, you go for an evening with them. Oh, it's ab an absolutely wonderful atmosphere. You start off just by talking about everything, all and sundry. Most evenings end up in singing. It's just a great atmosphere. But getting things done is just another kettle of fish. We haven't got any Irish people here, have we? Oh, no, no. I'm just trying to explain. Some of the differences can be unusually irritating and it's not normally big things it's often small things and this is why Jonah needed converting and I want to suggest to you some of us need converting until we've got a heart like God's who's passionate about these people in Nineveh and hates their lostness and wants them to know him this is the story of the Bible. So Jesus' mission was very simple. He came to people everywhere. Luke chapter 13, he talks about the kingdom of God and the future feast in the kingdom of God. And this is how he describes it. He says, and people from all nations will come and sit at the table in God's kingdom. Now the thing is, if you're invited to a meal, you have every, every bit as much of a right as anybody else who's invited to a meal. <laughs> So Jesus says, hey, do you understand what the kingdom's about? People from the east and the west and the north and the south are going to come and sit at the table in God's kingdom. Get used to it. This is how it is. Luke chapter 19, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. This is his mission statement. Anybody that's lost, Jesus wants to find them. And he wants them to find him. Anyone that's lost. Matthew chapter 24 verse 14 says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations, and then the end will come. So one of the things that we're engaged in is saying, how can we engage with the gospel of Jesus being preached in all nations before the end comes? And as I understand what Jesus is saying, despite the fact that in our hearts we're saying, Lord, please come soon, he's saying, actually, something's going to happen first. And it's going to be about preaching the gospel. When the Holy Spirit gets involved in the picture, the picture expands phenomenally. So, Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes. The disciples are converted from timid people into courageous people. Here's another conversion. So it's the conversion of our hearts to love the people that God loves. And then there's a conversion of our behavior. So we're changed from timid, silent people into courageous, outspoken people. Hello. This is not British. Okay. It is more true of other nations than here. This morning, Lorraine and I, in our prayer time, were praying for a brother who is very precious to us. His name is Desiree de Palma. He's a pastor in a church in Libya. His church is actually a French-speaking church for expats. But the delight for him is that he can be there and see Libyans come to Christ. And they're seeing lots of Libyans coming to Christ right now. He stayed in our home about four years ago. And I, it was just a delight to have him with us. You know, you feel... <laughs> he felt honored because we had him in our home. But we felt honored because he came and stayed in our home. It was one of those mutual blessing things. And he was so grateful that he, you know, we would invite him. And 
But he was such a godly man. And we said, aren't you ever tempted? Aren't you ever tempted to sort of pull out from Libya and go home to Burkina Faso where he came from? He said, how could I do that? He said, I encourage people in Libya to come to Christ and find the love of Christ and stand firm for him. I can't run away back home where it's more comfortable. I'm going to stand firm with them. He has been held up at gunpoint a couple of times. People in his church have been shot. They run a Christian school, which used to have 200 Christian children in, now has something like 500 Muslim children in it, uh, because because of the chaos in the country and the opportunities that that affords for them. Jesus loves the nations. One way or another, he's going to get the gospel out. The Holy Spirit then comes, converts timid disciples into courageous, outspoken disciples, moves them out to Samaria. Through persecution, he moves them out to Samaria. Why is it that God's people are so reluctant to go, to engage, that's one of the questions we can't avoid this morning. And I don't want to put a guilt trip on anybody. I, all I want to say is, is there a conversion that God wants from our lack of engagement to engagement? He moves them out to Samaria. Then he moves them in Acts chapter 11 to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And then he moves them in Acts chapter 13 to think big. Very big. And so they sent out from Turkey these apostles. They end up going to Syria. They're not from Turkey. They sent out from Antioch. And they end up going to Syria, Turkey, Greece, and on to Rome. But that's not enough for Paul because he's got a dream in his mind and it's called the ends of the earth. Now, the ends of the earth in his day was Spain. So he says to the Roman Christians, I'd really like you to send me on to Spain. Will you participate with me <laughs> so I can go to the ends of the earth? Do you know why? Because he got converted. He got converted in his heart from an ethnocentric, Jewish-centered, selfish, <laughs> bless us, don't let anybody else touch us to someone who loves nations and wants the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Thinking big. And what's the final goal? Well, here's the final goal. It's in Revelation chapter 7. It's prophesied here. You know this vision because we sing about it regularly in our worship songs. After this I looked, Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the New Testament writers are dreaming of the ultimate vision, which is the end of history. After Christ has come, taken all the evil out of the world, and all nations are represented in the throne room of God, worshipping him, thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions, all nations. That's the goal. Now, I don't know what your history is like, your church history especially. I suspect it has some gaps in it. Mine certainly does. I have a sort of big overview picture, but there's a few gaps in it because 2,000 years of history is not very easy to encapsulate. But for many people, it's a sort of first century, and then we jump, jump to the time of the Reformation and, you know, evangelistic breakout and all the rest of it. Actually, it wasn't like that at all. 
From year zero, if I can put it that way, or year 30 to year 400, there was a progression of the gospel. It did go to Rome in the first century, but then it filled the Roman Empire. And eventually, for good or bad, and I'm not going to make any comment about this at all, but for good or bad, the Roman Empire was deemed to be a Christian empire by the Emperor Constantine. Now, whether that was good or bad, let's withhold judgment. What was the case was that because of the progress of the gospel, it was conceivable for Rome to be called Christian. It wasn't declared to be Christian because, you know, people who rule places most often do what they know is going to be appreciated and what they can pull off, what will work. So Constantine did what he did because he could do it and it was seen to have favor with lots of people. That tells you that the gospel has impacted many nations in the Roman Empire by the year 400 or so. From the year 400 to 800, actually the gospel progressed into northern Europe. There were huge waves of gospel preaching and some of the great fathers of the faith that we know into northern Europe. Northern Europe was one, and again, the final and climactic sort of picture of this was the Emperor Charlemagne, whatever we think of him historically or not, but what it was basically saying is at that time, Europe could have been recognized, broadly speaking, as Christian. <coughs> of course, there's a lot of nominalism. Of course, there are a lot of gaps. But 800 to 1200 was a fascinating time of history when, of course, we were subject, like many parts of Northern Europe too, to invasions from the Vikings. Many Christian people were taken into captivity by the Vikings. And there are many stories of Vikings becoming Christians because of the people that they'd taken into the homes as slaves or as sex tools or as wives. But because of the love of those people and the sweetness of their serving spirits against the marauding rulers of the Vikings, <clears throat> much of Scandinavia was touched for Christ. Now, the years 1200 to 1600 were not very glorious years at all. That was when Christians tried to impose their faith on Muslim peoples. Didn't work at all. It was a horrible period of history. And hopefully we can learn that you can never enforce faith on people. I prefer to say as little as possible about that period of faith. But what happened towards the end of it <coughs> was that there was a huge reaction of people in the church looking for real faith and saying, what does it mean truly to be a follower of Christ? And right the way across Europe, there were lots, lots of people who were really asking that same question. Out of that came the Reformation. I know that there were all sorts of other things going on to do with the Reformation as well. But one of the things that we must understand is that there was a sort of faith uh, surge that happened through all that previous horrible period and all that was involved. There was a faith surge happened and people started looking for Christ anew. Out of that was born the Reformation. And out of the Reformation, what we call the modern missionary movement. Desire to go to all nations. And so from... 1600, 1700 through to the year 2000 plus, where we stand today. There's been a huge missionary thrust as the gospel has been taken to nations. 
Amongst the leaders in that, and some of you will have heard of this group of people, were a group called the Moravians in Germany, led by, led by Count von Zinzendorf, who started a one, well, he started a prayer meeting uh, for the evangelization of all nations. That prayer meeting lasted for a hundred years. That must have been a remarkable thing to be part of, must it? And why did it end? Here are some of the stories that you never quite know. They don't tell you those stories, do they? <laughs> Excuse me. We don't know. The Moravians had an amazing lifestyle. One in seven of them became missionaries out of this passion for the nations. They prayed for the opportunity to go. Wherever they went, the principle was they go, take a job, engage with society, so that, with the marketplace, so that, that gives them a platform into the nation. Wherever they go, they were told to see themselves as assistants of the Holy Spirit. I love that phrase. It's a recognition that the Holy Spirit's out there. Some people found the Holy Spirit was already on the streets of Oxford before you got there this week. Isn't that wonderful? That's a great reassurance, isn't it? Holy Spirit's out there. He's already on mission. We go out there as assistants, and they prayed this prayer. They prayed that the Lamb would receive the reward of his sufferings. It was the ongoing prayer. In other words, Jesus had died for the salvation of nations, and he deserves the harvest of his death. He deserves the reward of his sufferings. He wants people of all nations to know him. So, what about today? What do we do about this? Well, I've suggested some areas in which we need conversion. <laughs> converting our hearts so that we see people like God sees them and converting our timidity into boldness and so on. But I think there's a few other things I would like to... One of the things that there is a fresh emphasis on is what we call unreached peoples. That means nations where any local church that happens to be there is too small really to touch their nation and needs help from outside. I'd like to offer you a little video uh, which will perhaps explain what this is about and feel that many of us talk in terms of these terms, but it's good for just another's perspective, another view. Why don't we just watch this? In the beginning, God created everything. He created a world full of people to know him and to be known by him. This is the story of the Bible, God bringing people to himself. And when we read the Bible, we see how God went to great lengths to do this and how much God cares about people knowing him. You most likely already know this. And you probably live somewhere where people have a general understanding of this great love story between God and humanity. And if they don't know yet, there's probably somebody in town who can tell them. But did you also know that there are three billion people who will live and die without ever hearing this story? Not because they don't care, but because they don't have a choice. Nobody ever told them that once upon a time, God became a human just like them. So that he could teach them how to know their creator. 40% of the world doesn't know this, and they won't know this. Not unless something changes. Not unless someone goes to tell them. Jesus is our wonderful example. He left his natural home to come to us, and then he tells us to do the same thing. Because we love Jesus and care about the same things that he cares about, we care about this. That the whole world would know him. That every tongue, tribe, and people group would come and be able to worship him. So the question is, are we doing this? Going out into the world to bring the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation? Well, kind of. While churches do send people out, almost half the world still doesn't have any access to the gospel. But how is this possible? Aren't there people being sent? Well, yeah. There are about 400,000 people serving across the world today. But only 3% of them are actually going to the 40% who have never heard about Jesus. The other 97%? They're going to places that have already heard about Jesus. There's an imbalance. That imbalance leaves only one person for each 250,000 people who have never heard about Jesus. Put another way, we have a spirit-led calling to rethink our focus. When you look at how we use our resources, such as money, the picture doesn't look that much better. 
be specific, Christians around the world are giving about 2% of their income to Christian causes. And less than 7% of that is going to cross-cultural workers. And of that cross-cultural giving, only 1 one-hundredth of that 0.1% is actually going to those working with the 3 billion people who don't know Jesus, have no church, or any Christian neighbors. The other 99% of all cross-cultural giving goes to the rest of the world that already has Christians, Bibles, and churches. Are you seeing the imbalance? Only 3% of our workers with only 1% of our cross-cultural finances are going to the 3 billion people who have never heard about Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with this? We want those 3 billion people to hear about the kingdom of God and how much God loves them. There are 17,000 ethno-linguistic groups in the world. People who share language, culture, and common history. 7,000 of them are considered unreached people groups. These are entire cultures who have never heard the amazing story of how Jesus loves them and came to save them. God has called us to pay attention to this, to love and care for the same things that he does. He put this desire on our heart to see the unreached reached with the amazing story of the love of God. We want to see lasting local church planning movements begin among these people groups that brings renewal and transformation among these cultures and societies. Why? Because God has moved our hearts to see the gospel transform whole societies among the unreached. We know this task is bigger than us. Many of the areas that are in need of the gospel are difficult and resistant places. It isn't something that can be accomplished overnight, but by the power of the Spirit, we endeavor to preach the gospel where Christ is not known so that God can be worshipped by all peoples. So it's just another little window into one of the conversations we've been having over the last few years ourselves um, in wanting to see, do we need to prioritize unreached people? Which is why we're grateful for people like Ben and Michelle and Jack and Claire and others who are leading the way uh, amongst their generation for that. The great thing is we've got fresh opportunities on our doorstep with God moving unreached peoples into us on our doorstep. And that's a great privilege in this city. We have those people. And, and one of the questions that we need to keep asking God about is how can we identify with these people whom God loves so that they don't live in little ghettos that we can't break into. We live in our ghetto, they live in their ghetto, but somehow there's a proper sharing of the you know, ordinary natural love <laughs> for one another, but also the gospel of Christ. The great thing is there's a fresh heart for social justice and the compassion of Jesus to flow out into his world as well. These are opportunities that uh, provide platforms for us to share the love of Jesus. The great thing today is it's less about rationalism and much more about spirituality. People do have a spiritual hunger. They want something real that will satisfy them inside. That's why people respond on the streets. More there than we imagine. More people in God's world who are really hungry for God than we imagine. And it is true that Muslim people are being born again in thousands and tens of thousands at this moment of time because they're hungry for some reality with God. I want to suggest to you that one of the questions we need to be asking ourselves, and this is so sort of rapid, really, a sort of review of what about today, is what does it mean to be a global disciple today? Which is that we're not living selfishly, and we're not living uncaringly, but we're concerned for what God is doing in his world. And I want to suggest to you that for those of you who travel with work, that's a question you should be asking. If you have the privilege of traveling, is there somebody you can touch when you travel? And it'll give you, actually, you can prepare by talking to some of those people here as well. Uh, or are there people you should be praying for? There are great prayer guides for other nations. I want to encourage you to do it. Great that we're praying for this team going to Macedonia, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks. As I read the 
the leaflet of their trip, I thought, this is superb. What an opportunity uh, to get involved with that people. Short-term mission is one of the things that we can engage in. Those of us who have the decent vacations. You may say, oh, we haven't got the resources. We've got the vacations, not the resources. Let me tell you something. God has a way of providing for people who don't have resources. That's just what Steve was telling us early, earlier. And it's true. Um, and I would just say this. Please don't ignore the promptings of your heart and your spirit. And you know, if God gets you to do unusual things, do them. Take an atlas out. Pray over maps of the world. See if God doesn't speak to you about different nations. One of our very good friends, a guy called Len Barlotti, who's influenced the life of many of us here, the way he got a call to Pakistan was he used every night, he would open an atlas and he would pray for God's world. And eventually, the Pashtun people on the border uh, were the ones that uh, he was to go to. Whatever the promptings of your heart and your spirit, do it. Let our hearts be converted. Let our boldness be converted. And let's have God's heart for the nations. I'd just like to pray, and then Josh is going to lead us, or at least the band is going to lead us uh, in a final song. But can I pray for all of us? Heavenly Father, thank you for this world that you've made with all its energy, variety, richness, uh, all the different peoples, different characteristics, different cultures, but where you want to break in with the love of Christ. I want to pray that you break into our hearts first, where we're cold or selfish or whatever it may be, would you please break in with passion, love for lost people everywhere. Where you need to convert us first, would you please convert us first. And we want to pray that there will be even more avenues out into all sorts of different ethnic groups in our own city, in our own nation, across Europe, into other nations in the future, which will allow the love of Christ to touch many, many hundreds and thousands of people. So please have your will and your way with us. And if we pray for your kingdom to come, we pray that your kingdom will come in us too. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.